0: I very often just say things like they are and so it's not uncommon to hear me say i care that that happened recover
1: hey it's david and you're listening to leadership without losing your soul your source for practical leadership inspiration tools and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. Excited to bring you our guest today. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to learning from her. And here in the middle of season 15, I'm excited to introduce you to Megan Gluth-Bohan. Uh, Meg is a owner and CEO of a multinational corporation. The name of her company is Catalant. Uh, But the path there wasn't easy, and her struggles have taught her the critical importance of compassion, empathy, and resilience in leadership no matter who or where you are, Meg's living proof that now is always the best time to take the first step forward. And uh, Meg, I am so excited to have you on the show to learn more about your work with Catalent and, and just your leadership journey and all of the the practical advice you're gonna have for our guests. Um, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul.
0: Thanks, David. I'm glad to be here.
1: Uh, you've got a number of accolades. Uh, you, were a, uh, you, you said you went from uh, some of your uh, uh, materials, you, I remember reading you went from being a college dropout to entrepreneur of the year.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say dropout. I would say kicked out, uh, <laughs> probably the more accurate uh, statement. But I like to be honest about that because I think being really um, candid and authentic about where we start uh, right. is important. Um,
1: well, I, I would love to dive into that a little bit deeper. And and in order to do that, let's go even farther back, uh, if we could, to Uh, I want to invite you to share with us your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. And that can mean whatever it means to you. We've had people start at age five and some don't start till age 25 or 30. So whatever it means to you.
0: For sure. I think that my earliest memory of being a leader probably goes back. I am a big sister um, and I have a little brother and my little brother is 13 months younger than I am. And so um, the difference is not significant, but I certainly uh, acted as though it was. And so um, anybody with with a little brother can probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I was I was a bit as a child, I think probably precocious and a little bit pushy uh, at times. And I certainly was with him. I was um, always, I think, dreaming up the next thing for us to do, the next thing for us to play. And luckily, he um, he could catch the ball of that energy really, really well. And he and I had an awesome back and forth um, and an amazing dynamic that, frankly, continues to this day. Uh, we understand each other and, and we get each other. But I would say that, that that's probably the, um, the earliest memory of leadership that I have, both finding trouble for us and then helping us to get out of said trouble. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, there's that transparency again, right? The authenticity. It's like, Hey, it wasn't just, you know, creating and constructing. It was also finding trouble together. For sure. Something I empathize with. I, I think, uh, I was all, I was also the oldest, oldest of six in my case. And, uh, so four younger sisters, younger brother, and oh boy. Yeah. Finding I, and I think I was often the author of that trouble. I'm not sure I extracted them as well as I could have, <laughs> but, oh, good stuff. Well, all right. So, Tell us about Catalent. Just as a you know, fifty thousand foot view, you global multinational corporation. Um, what are you doing?
0: Yeah, at its simplest form, Catalent is a company that helps American companies make things. So we bring in raw materials, ingredients, chemical molecules from all over the world into the United States, and we sell them to companies who make things like paint toothpaste, soft drinks, um, the insides of diapers. All of that is something that's created and manufactured. In addition to our work um, sourcing and supplying those raw materials, we also make things ourselves at a plant in Chicago where we do a lot of contract manufacturing, toll blending, um, and creating for companies that maybe need to or want to outsource some of the production from their own facilities, maybe they're at capacity. And so the concept of building an entirely new plant and a new production line is not worth it for them. And so we're making things there. We make a lot of really cool chemistries there and a lot of really cool um, blends and products that you see every day in your daily life without maybe realizing the full work of what went into that creation.
1: You're right in the middle of the supply chain then, aren't you?
0: Yeah, and sometimes maybe at the beginning of it and the middle of it and the end of it and and too much of it. Anytime there's a supply chain crisis of any kind, my um, my nights get a lot more fitful
1: in terms Your of sleep. Your phone starts ringing. I, I yes. can imagine that the last several years have been a little stressful.
0: But that would be putting it really mildly, David.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us then, uh, in particular, because of... Uh, you know, some of the humanity that you're trying to bring to the work that you're doing. Um, you know, you already mentioned authenticity, transparency, you want to learn more about your journey. Um, and in light of that stress and how you've managed it, and also we're going to get into all of that as as we go here. But so let's, uh, let's go back. Well, first, uh, how how many people does Catalan employ? So let's just get a general size of the organization.
0: Sure, we're just over 50 people. And our revenue last year, um, prior to the two acquisitions that I completed this year, our revenue last year was about 120
1: million. All right. And so two acquisitions this year. So we know if you weren't busy with all those supply chain issues, as soon as those are resolved, let's do some acquisitions. That'll add a little extra time and energy for us.
0: <laughs> I'm either a glutton for punishment or or somebody who, who just finds this fun. I tell people I'm an object in motion. I have a lot of internal inertia. And I think that's not uncommon for people with sort of the entrepreneurial bent. I certainly have that. And I, I feel that impulse within me.
1: Absolutely. And it's important if uh, for those of you who may not have that impulse yourself to understand how that impulse works and guides and, and motivates the person who might be running your organization if you're in that that situation. All right. So let's Let's get into your history, a little bit about your journey and some of the resilience that you're talking about. And you mentioned earlier, dropped out isn't as accurate. Maybe it was more kicked out. (laughs) Talk Mm -hmm. to us about your journey.
0: Yeah. So I it goes way back to my childhood. I'm I'm actually um my parents divorced early on. I'm actually the oldest of what is a total of eight children um, between the two parents' remarriages and and things like that. Um, but my childhood is marked with a lot of stories of of trauma and poverty and, um, just difficulty. Um, I grew up in, in rural Iowa and I don't think that the experience I had there was entirely, um, uncommon for, for the area. And I'm not, not to say that that area breeds that, but, but a lot of times when you're in a more rural agrarian community, you find people's livelihoods rising and falling on things like whether it was a good winter and, and you definitely found that and and saw that. And so I always phrase it this way, um, because it's important for me to protect and, and maintain sort of the dignity of the people around me. Um, but if, if I were to take the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences test, I would have a high score on the ACEs test. And so when I got done with high school, um, I had already started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. I had already started finding unhealthy coping mechanisms and had sort of manifestations in my life that are really, really common to kids who mm-hmm. grow up in, in experiences of trauma and poverty. And I went to college on every Pell Grant and aid and all of that kind of thing. And I, I wasted the experience because I was so, I guess, committed committed. <laughs> For lack of a better word, not intentionally so, but I really was living a life that was marked by addiction and and substance abuse, really, mm-hmm. if you boil it down. And um and I do so I I do boil that down because I think that a huge part of the journey to where I am now is about being really honest and truthful about that. But um my first college experience resulted in me being kicked out of school because you cannot prioritize those kinds of activities over studying. You'll be on academic probation and you'll be get kicked out. And um, and that's what happened to me. And after that time, I spent um, a couple years going to community college, trying to sort of put together a transcript that might show a new institution that I was worthy of coming back to get a bachelor's degree. And that's what happened. I, I went and finally got a bachelor's degree. It took me seven years. And um, at the end of that time, I had a bachelor's degree in history, and no desire to teach. And so I took the LSATs, sort of as a, I I guess this is what you do um, with a history degree. And uh, I was accepted to law school and ended up going to law school. And during my second year of law school, um, my first wife at the time was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. It was the start of my second year of law school. And um, what ended up, sort of that, that journey was horrible. I mean, anybody who's ever done that will tell you um, that it's not, it, it's something that doesn't leave you the same after after you're done. It's not easy. You see things, you grow up quickly. And if, you know for frame of reference, I, I mean, I almost didn't get to go to law school. My financial aid package wasn't adequate. A friend of mine's father co-signed on private student loans for me to be able to go. Um, and in so doing, changed my life. But I had this pressure of this need to graduate from law school, to get a job, to start paying those loans back. I had no safety net financially. And so the only option I had was to succeed, was to do this, was to graduate. But I also had this person fighting this illness at home and and we were doing both things. Um, And, and it was a really hard time. And it was about two and a half years later, um, right after I graduated from law school and actually passed the bar exam um, that she passed away. Mm -hmm. And that marked for me sort of the, I, I describe it as the time that I went from being sort of an amateur drinker to a professional because what I had done my whole life to cope and to move through difficulty was to avoid and to get lost in substances. And so I became um, a very functional alcoholic. I was practicing law, I was doing the thing and I certainly um, did a good job and and did right by what I needed to do. And so by doing that, I was able to say to myself, well, nothing's wrong here, nothing's broken, nothing, I'm not, I'm going to work every day, I'm doing a good job, I'm not drinking during the day, everything's fine. But it wasn't, it wasn't because what was happening was the degradation of my myself and my wholeness and my integrity and my sense of self-worth. And it wasn't until I, um, a couple of years down the road, met someone new um, who said to me, she said, I, I really like you and I would love to do this with you, but I'm not going to do this, this mm-hmm. alcoholism part. And, um, at first I reacted bitterly to that, but what ended up happening is that I went into, um, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and I haven't had a drink since, um, or any consciousness altering substance since. And, um, I married her and, and we have two beautiful children together. And so, um, there's a lot in that story. That's the, the fast version, but, um, But there is a lot in there that's that's a mark of resilience and of perseverance and also of complete and total abject failure. Um, And I talk about that, too, with with equal weight.
1: Yeah. Oh, Meg, thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm sorry for the loss of your first spouse and uh, and congratulations on the second um, relationship there. I'm curious as you share that, not that it's directly related to leadership, but I think, you know, as part of your journey. you had somebody who cared about you. And so, you know, said, Hey, listen, <laughs> I care about you and not cool. This isn't working. And that was enough. Or was there more to it in terms of, you know, to, to get to that first meeting and and do that work? Uh, I have not struggled with that myself, but having friends and family and, and so on or people who have, uh, so that secondhand journey, um, uh, experience. I'm just curious what what it was for you that some of the things that helped you to make that change for yourself.
0: You know, you asked the way you phrased it was, was that enough? And the answer is no. So I, I think, and this has everything to do with leadership, right? Because before we can lead anything, we have to lead ourselves. And and leadership of yourself requires a, a really honest and thorough self-knowing. And I knew for years that the woman that I wanted to be, that the woman I was destined to be was not who I was being in the world. It's it's not how I was acting. It's not how I was engaging with the world. And I didn't like that. I didn't like waking up in the morning, hung over on a Saturday morning after a night of, you know, binge drinking or, or whatnot and feeling as though I blew it. Like I I wasn't acting within my own integrity, my own desire. And I I I don't know how to phrase this, but I but I truly wasn't myself. Mm-hmm. And so I think in order for a person like myself to get out of sort of the snare of addiction, it was great that she said that to me, but it's not the reason that I sobered up. It was like that person saying that thing to you that you already know. And I think there's a confluence of events and a confluence of a coming together of energy that gets you to that place where then at that time, when that person says that to you, you can go and do something with that. And in this case, I just was ready. That was ripe. That seed was ripe. Um, I think that it isn't always like that for people who are listening, who have somebody at home or a you know, family member or whatever who's struggling with addiction. I mean, it really is true that, that they can't get well until they are ready but I don't think that means being silent either. I I right. think saying what you need to say, you never know when that's going to catch the momentum of of what needs to be heard. And the corollary to that is that she didn't say it in a way where she was trying to do that for me and she wasn't going to drag me there and she wasn't going to do that. She literally made a declaration about what worked for herself. Right. And standing in her own power, I think, hit the switch of mine.
1: mm. Beautiful, and so many different things that we can apply there in, in different facets of life. So how has your experience and that suffering that that you experienced in all of those ways, the, the work that you have done since, how has all of that informed your leadership as a CEO and business owner?
0: I mean, how many hours do you have, right? <laughs> I mean, we show up as our whole selves in in what we do. Um, I was reflecting on some of this the other day and I, I said, um, to someone very close to me, I don't know if I ever learned how to be like a proper CEO. Um, my journey to get here was whatever,
1: whatever that means, <laughs>
0: whatever that is, right. That, um, my journey to get here wasn't like other people's. Right. And so what I've had to do is sort of feel my way into this and go with my gut. And I I do that still to this day, that both acquisitions I've made in the last year, Listen, I, I had the stacks of financials in front of me. I could have done all that work, but that's not what I did first. I, I felt my way into that. I'm a very intuitive leader. And I think that I would not be like that, and I wouldn't be as good at it if I didn't have some of these experiences of struggle. I would encourage anyone listening to be very, very grateful when you can for the hardship in your life. Um, And for the times when you've really been at sort of the end of yourself, because that's where you meet yourself, you meet your own resilience and you meet your own ingenuity and you start to know what feels right and what feels wrong. And I think leadership at at an executive level really at the end of the day is just that volumes of books have been written on how we make decisions and how to make good decisions. And I think none of them are wrong, but I do think that at the end of the day, really what we're doing is we're standing with our back against the wall saying, does this feel right? Yes or no. And if you are at the top of your leadership triangle, like I happen to be, you're the only person in the room that can do that at the end of the day. And so having a really good awareness of your own internal landscape, I think helps inform that certainly. And it has for me.
1: Uh, it's a beautiful way to think about it and a very practical takeaway from our conversation is as you're listening, you know, listeners, that skill, that muscle about, does this feel right? I can rationalize, get all the number, everything else I want to do, whatever other people are doing, but at the end of the day, does this feel right to me? Can I look myself in the mirror and go to bed feeling good about the human being I am?
0: That's right. That's right.
1: The muscle we develop, and I think in many ways that's the essence. When people ask me, What do you mean by the title of the show, Leadership Without Losing Your Soul? That's what it is. It's can I have that conversation with myself every day and feel good about the human being I am, how I am interacting with myself, how I'm treating myself, and then all of the people around me, and then from there, our customers, partners, suppliers, yes. vendors, so on. Yeah. All right, we're talking with Meg Luth-Bohan. She is the CEO of CatalanT materials company said, providing the resources people use to make things in the United States, and then making a few of those things on behalf of people as well. So thanks again for being here with us. So as we've been talking about your journey and uh, some of what that has done to inform your leadership, You talk about having an empathetic leadership culture, that that's the kind of way you want to lead, the kind of culture that you want to create. So I'd like to dive into that and explore that a little bit. What does an empathetic leadership approach culture look like from your perspective?
0: Sure. For me, it's something, and I don't know if empathy is the right word. It's the one I've landed on. But if I'm totally honest, I I'm looking for for what this is, because for me, this is a very practical, human-centered capitalism that I'm doing here. Um, so what this looks like, practically, is that I want to create a space for people to show up and rise. And my job as a business leader is to create a platform for that to occur. And so when you lead thinking that way, then maybe it looks like, and and this is the way it happens to look at my business, but I think other people can do different things. But um, I don't really care so much what's on a person's resume. And in fact, um, people here will tell you that I've never read the resumes of, I would say 99% of the people who work here. I don't know uh, where they went to college. I don't know what they majored in. I don't particularly care. Um, And that sounds maybe a little crazy. But when I sit down with somebody, I'm looking for those things that you can't teach. Mm. And I'm very firm about what those things are. It's not that there are no rules. There are no guidelines. There are no, it's not that at all. And in fact, to work here is to be considered the best in your craft or to want to be the best in your craft. Many of my sellers are chemical engineers. They need to be. They're, they're selling to people who are in labs creating things and so yes they need to have some some education there and and all of that and I just I guess assume that they do um and
1: hard to fake chemical engineering guy exactly
0: exactly but I'm looking for the the part of them that is bold that is driven that desires um answers that's curious because you can be top of your class. Uh, in chemical engineering. But if you're not curious and you're not driven and you're not somebody who even has within you sort of that feeling of grit and determination, then I'm not convinced you're going to get up and come to work every day and do that here. And I need to know that first. Some of our most successful people at this company um, are people who I think of one who she shares all the time that she barely made it through high school. She really struggled as a high school student and barely graduated high school. And she's now in a position of leadership in this company and she's fantastic. That's because she has that thing you can't teach, that drive, that grit, that determination, that work ethic. And so I look for those things first. And I think that's about empathy and being human-centered. I think um, this idea that people's potential is what we should hire and that we should see their potential, maybe uh, in order to know where they're going rather than focusing so much on where they've been. I think that's a very empathetic move and a very practical move. And frankly, uh, I'm not afraid to say that's a very profitable move. I'm more interested in people's tomorrow than I am their yesterday. I make more money that way. And um, and so I'm, I'm super candid about that as well. The other thing that this means is that um, the way we run our business here, I have unlimited half days. I don't want you to take a half day of PTO if you want to go to the dentist or if you want to be at your child's soccer game. I want you to do those things. I, I want you to not abuse the privilege. And they don't, David. They they don't. I they they manage themselves because again, starting at the beginning, they're all people who have that thing you can't teach, that own self-containment and that that self-drive to do right. Um, and so we're we're just kind of not loose but like we're we're a collective community of people who kind of are grown-ups together i guess and the empathy in that is that i can look at them and i can see their humanity for the talent that they bring for the potential that they have and then also the obligations that they have in the world right now and i really work hard to to balance both things
1: nice so when you're saying that you value people's tomorrow more than their yesterday, what you're, and and at the same time, what what you're looking for, those things that are kind of the core constituent parts of their personality and who they are as a human being. When you're looking at that, that is part of who they were yesterday, but it's not what they achieved yesterday with that. It's what you see as possible, given that that aspect of of their nature.
0: Yes, but I have people working for me who have had, You know, DUIs in the past. If I was to limit their potential to that one moment in time, I would miss the gifts that they're bringing to my business right now. And so you have to be very careful in how much weight you place in that. I'm more interested in whether that person got that DUI and then laid on the ground and whined about it for years, or whether they got that DUI and used it as the thing that motivated them to do better. And if it's the latter, then I'm super interested in that part of their past. Right? I, I so I guess it's not that it doesn't matter, but it I think that that it matters in li- only insofar as it creates something in you that's residual or lasting for the positive and for the strong.
1: It's not that things on habits. What are you doing with them?
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right.
1: And that's the piece that gives you the insight into kind of who they are and that character and, and so on. All right, we're talking with Meg Gluth-Bohan, she's the CEO of CatalanT, and uh, talking about this empathetic leadership, human-centered leadership, and you used a phrase earlier that I love, this human-centered capitalism, you said, even as a a way of, it's a mouthful, but it's a way of thinking about it, um, creating a place for people to show up and rise, and as you have been talking, Meg, one of the things that I always find interesting in these discussions and I love tapping into different leaders experiences about this is. You mentioned earlier, like there's that aspect in your culture of self governance and we're all grownups we're all you're hiring people who are responsible and and are success driven and whatever that means for them and, and the company. I am curious. You mentioned earlier before we started talking that uh, in, as we were getting ready to turn the, the the mics on, that you can be blunt and direct and so on. So there's definitely a balance for you in terms of compassion and empathy uh, and your approach to communication and so on. So I'm curious about that intersection because so often when you talk to somebody uh, about empathy and compassion, it can, gosh, I can start to feel like... Uh, people will get concerned well that's nice but if I lead that way I'm gonna get walked over and that kind of thing and that certainly is not the case for you so how do you balance that what do you find is the interaction between those aspects of leadership
0: you know it's a tricky one and it's something I do really well that I don't always know that I'm doing um and so it's an interesting question because I think a lot of the people who work for me could probably answer it better but here's how it goes one of the things that I say that um I'm from the Midwest. We have a lot of weird sayings and, and some of them you could never repeat in live air. But, but one of them is that I say all the time is, hey, listen, just give me the baby, not the labor. And I'm very driven to the point. And so I very often just say things like they are. And so it's not uncommon to hear me say, I care that that happened, recover. And telling people what I expect from them from this moment in their life and being so candid candid is one of the value core values of this company. Like just don't beat around the bush. Don't take 20 minutes to say what could be said in one minute. And so I do that. I live that oddly enough, that bluntness that speaking plainly, that is perceived by the people who work here as so compassionate And so kind, because they always know where they stand, David. Nobody's wondering what Meg thinks. Nobody's wondering if Meg is mad at me. Nobody is wondering if I'm going to get fired. Like, I don't do that with people. I don't play mind games. They deserve to know where their leader stands, what she stands for, and what she's about. And I give that to them every day. I owe them that. Stability is a core need of an employee. And you can't have stability if you can't practically communicate with them. Or if you're so blown here and there by the emotion that you have, and a lot of people conflate emotion and empathy, and it's not that at all. Empathy is is honoring people for who they are, for the dignity that they have, and then giving them what they need to be successful in a leadership setting. And that's what I'm doing by being blunt, by being plain. Being blunt and being plain and being candid does not mean being an a-hole. And I think a lot of people get that confused too. You can just say plainly what's happening without being a jerk. And so I think I, I ride that line really well. And, um, and I'm pretty committed to riding that line well, because I think they respond to it. They like it again. They know where they stand, David. There's no guesswork with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ms. Ty, you brought to mind several different things. One I was talking with a, a, a CEO client of ours uh, a while back. Uh, I guess I was going to say uh, earlier this year. It's now last year at the time we're recording. We're into 24 now, but uh, was talking and he said, "You know, a large organization, so he'll have more junior people doing a presentation." He said, "You know, I just need these two bullet points, but the deck they put together, there's hundreds of slides and everything else." And uh, you know that, had that having that conversation, so don't give me the baby, don't give me the labor, just give me the baby. That's right. Uh, you know, get the bottom line. And if you need explanation, of course, you can ask for it. If that's the communication style that works for you, I wanted to explore a little bit farther. Uh, further, have you unpack the uh, the phrase that you used? I care that that happened. Now recovered. Like, can you unpack that for us a little bit? What are we? When might you use that for you? And what mm-hmm. are you saying with it?
0: I use that. Well, first of all, everything I do, I do to myself first, right? Like I can't put standards out to my organization that I'm not willing to live by myself. But on the job, a lot of people come to any task and everybody's tasks in a given day are different, but everybody wants to be successful at them. That's how they feel a sense of accomplishment, pride, achievement when they leave and go home at the end of the day. And many, many times people make mistakes that's part of living and that's part of life. And when someone's in a mistake or when we as an organization are in a mistake, oh, I wish we'd have done things differently. There is a moment where you can sit there and spin on that or lay in it or wallow in it or wonder, do I have to tell these people that I screwed this up? Like all of that, cut out all that noise, recover. I'm so sorry that this mistake happened. I'm so sorry you screwed this up. I'm so sorry that somebody else screwed this up. The truck didn't deliver. Now recover. Work the solution. What are you going to do about it? The win in business is not in never having mistakes. The win in business is how quickly you recover. Learn from that, but get to the solution. And it's my job as a leader to remind people to do that. Now, what ends up happening is that that very same energy works in our personal lives, and it works for a lot of them and theirs. How tolerant are we of our own BS when something isn't going our way, or when we're struggling with something, or if you had a New Year's resolution, you know, based on when we're recording this, right? If you had a New Year's resolution, you failed that. Like, how long are you going to lay in that before you recover? And so I think that um, some things take longer to recover from. Some things truly are not our fault and some things are just hard. And how long are we going to lay in that? I had a friend say to me, um, soon after my, my first wife passed away, I was laying on the couch and I was wallowing and I hadn't been out of bed you know, or off that couch in days. And she said, listen, she said, no one would blame you if you spent the rest of your life in the same exact position. But how cool are you going to be with that? And I could have heard that as so offensive and and so terrible. Like, how dare you say that to me? I'm grieving. I like, I have the right to be, but, but she was absolutely right. Like, you know, recover Meg, because how do you want to live? And, um and so I bring that down to even the smallest parts of our business. And again, people like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you're right. We can't. we got this. I'm going to go to the solution. And they do, they get there, David. That's why we solve problems as an organization.
1: I love the the core of that message. I hope everyone listening is is getting that, that your ability to succeed in business, in life, and whatever is your ability to recover. It's not if things go wrong. It's when things go. I like to say it's not if problems, it's which problems, right? So That's right. Which Which problems yes. do I want to have? I'm going to have the problem of sitting here and this never happening or i'm gonna have the problem i'm gonna take action we're gonna make mistakes but i'm gonna learn from them or i'm not gonna learn from them that's a different set of problem which problem do i want to have right so and i just want to tease this out just a little because i think there's so much gold here for people listening who want to be human centered and get the and the moving towards performance part of what i'm hearing when you say all right i'm i, I it's important. I know that that happened and remind me of the language you used.
0: I'm sorry that happened.
1: I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. It's, it's acknowledging. So, okay. I'm sorry that happened. Maybe the person you're talking to, they made a mistake. They literally, they genuinely dropped a ball or maybe they couldn't have seen it coming. And, or, you know, maybe if they were more experienced, they would have, but now they have that experience. So, right. um, or maybe as you said, completely outside of them happened and it really was unavoidable. So a range of experiences, part of what you're doing in that as a leader that I'm sensing, you're not beating them up about it. And a lot of leaders can do that. They'll like, well, you should have, thought." I can't believe you, you know, you're not wallowing and you're not camping out in the negative emotions of all those things. You're acknowledging, yes, this thing happened. No, we wish it wouldn't have happened, but it did. So now what do we do?
0: That's right. Hmm. That's right. You can't listen. Every leader has a moment where they do want to go camp out there. And and I'd be lying if I didn't look at some problems and go, oh, my God, who screwed this up? And I just want to come unglued about that. But that isn't about the person who did that. That's about me and whatever yeah. emotional crap that I've got going on there that I need to go service. Here's the fact. The very same employee who made the mistake usually has the answer for the solution and nobody is harder on an employee than themselves, full stop. If they don't have that, they shouldn't be working for you, they need to go someplace else. Here, everybody who works here has to have that sense of ownership and that desire to to make things right. How quickly can I have the very same talent that can help me out of this problem, go towards that solution? That's my question, like that's my work, that's my task, that's the thing for myself. Well, the quickest way to get to the solution is for them not to be laying on the ground bleeding while I beat them up. The quickest way forward is to have them feeling empowered to get us to the solution together because they can. They're humans, they're going to make mistakes. They are also going to make the solutions. And so standing over them yelling is is so self-defeating for yourself as a leader and for the organization. I think when we stand over and yell, I think that becomes kind of an ego thing or I'm blowing off steam because I've got stress in other areas of the business. And again, you need to manage yourself and not be doing that. That's the task of a leader.
1: Love it. Well, on that note, Meg, how do you manage yourself? How do you manage yourself and your stress these days?
0: Yeah, so I I feel like my number one job as a leader is actually to take care of myself. And this year, um, this last year, I uh, in 2023, I completed two acquisitions. That was a lot. Uh, I'm also the parent of two small kids. I've got this company. like I, I have things. But one of the things I realize is that my success and my leadership really is better the more I'm taking care of myself. And so the way that I do that is I'm pretty regimented about the fact that I get up early in the morning. And I know everybody says 5 a.m. start, blah, 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 blah. Listen, I do the 5am start. And the reason I do it is because I have a lot going on during the day. And I have two small children. My daughters are four and six. And so for me, the early morning time is the time that I'm alone. And so it it practically makes sense for me as well. Um, But I get up, I have a daily meditation practice. And this is so important for me to engage mindfully with what is happening in my brain, what is happening in my body, what is happening in my psyche. And then I spend some time at getting physical exercise. If I don't get physical exercise in a day, I don't work right. And I'm just one of those people. I need that. And I think we all ought to remember that we're animals <laughs> in our human frame, you know? And so we do need that opportunity to blow that off, whatever that is. Um, and and so I do that. I'm also really methodical about what I consume. I'm careful about what I eat. I'm careful about what I read. I'm careful about what I watch. Um and I'm careful about who I let speak over and into my life, mm-hmm. and I think um, all of that is just part of what I ingest and and what I'm willing to bring into my to my space. When I'm doing those things and taking care of myself in that way, I am preparing myself to be the best leader I can be in a day. Incidentally. I'm also preparing myself to be the best spouse I can be, the best mom I can be, the best friend I can be, the best sister I can be, um, and so the none of that is really being. wasted.
1: Yeah, that's about being the best human be- human self you can.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Our guest today is Meg Gluth Bohan, the CEO of Catalent, and uh, Meg, you have. Uh, we'll put all of the social media links you provide and so forth. We'll get those in the show notes. But if uh, somebody's listening and oh, wow, I, I really want to connect with. With her. Meg's got a lot to teach me. Love to learn more, Uh, maybe connect with what Catalan's doing. Uh, Where can we connect? Where where should we go?
0: You should start with my website, www.megangluthbohan.com. I'm sure the spelling and all of that will be in the show notes. That is the quickest way to sort of begin your engagement with me. Um, I have social media. I'm not the one that um, moderates that. I'm, I'm not necessarily technologically inclined. I still like paper books and I like taking notes on paper. So, um, starting with my website is a great way to just come into the orbit. And I, I do engage with people. I, I find people fascinating and curious and I'm, I'm happy to help any way I can.
1: Always in motion. There you go. That's
0: right. That's right.
1: Meg, as we uh, uh, wrap up our conversation, I want to ask you from your perspective as a CEO, and when you're thinking about uh, some of the managers in your business, or as you look at the, the business environment more broadly, um, what are, would you say are one or two of the biggest challenges confronting leaders today? And particularly within an organization, CEO leadership has all of its own set of challenges. I'm curious for the next level down Mm. Or two, what are some of the challenges that you see um, leaders facing today that are some of the more significant?
0: I think broadly across all sectors of the economy and in any company and any level of management, I think we're having a hard time finding people to come to work.
1: Mm. I think
0: I think that is a really hard thing, literally for everybody in, in a management or a leadership position that I know. Further to that, um, I think there is a, a pressure on management to to lead, to reach objectives, but to feel like they, they're towing this line between having standards and holding people accountable and not losing the people that they worked so hard to find. Um, and I think there's a real tricky balance there. I don't have all the answers to that. I I think it's a multifaceted conversation. Well,
1: darn, I was just going to have you lay them out for us.
0: (laughs) But I do think that we do have to keep turning back and starting with ourselves. You have to lead in the way that you know in your gut is right. And you also have to hire in that way too. Don't be afraid to take somebody that looks a little less qualified, but has a bit more drive, a little more gas in their engine. Those people also are going to be very receptive and very open to the um, feedback that you give them and the training that you give them and i think that will be well worth it.
1: And of course there's also the the element that you know the, the, one of the things that i think is true is so many leaders and managers have that tape playing in their head that says if i practice good accountability that's going to drive people away and it doesn't. It doesn't. The the right kind of human centered good accountability is is empowering and helps us feel good about the work we're doing and values it and, and i want to be a part of that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. At least
1: folks who are right for your business will want to be a part of that.
0: If they don't know what they're doing to get something right, then they can't ever feel like a success. You have to remember that too. There has to be standards and accountability so they know when they're winning too. And then you let them celebrate their win.
1: Celebrate with them. Well, the last question then that I want to ask you goes to the other side of that equation because you mentioned earlier Um, There comes a time where we recognize that this person is not a great fit for this role, and maybe that's on me, maybe I hire, or maybe, you know, hey, like you said, made a mistake. Okay, I'm not going to wallow in it, because if I do, I'm not serving them, I'm not serving myself, nor am I serving the team or the company. What criteria do you use to know when it is in both the person and the organization's best interest for them to move on?
0: I had a mentor once tell me, and I think this is just sort of standard out there, you know, to be slow to hire and quick to fire. We know, as leaders, we know when somebody is not working out. The criteria I use is when you know that, you act on that. If you know that it doesn't work for the organization, swiftly end that. Because it also isn't working for the employee if it isn't working for you. If one, then the other. It's a very simple conundrum that can be easily solved. I think um, the criteria is looking at performance and results. Those are the only two things that matter. I'm not interested in after a period of time. You know, excuses and and things like that and and reasons and whatever, you know, you know, as a leader when that's legitimate, when there's a training gap, when there's something else. But after a while, after you've answered all of those things, you just know it's not working and you need to quickly make a decision and move on. Because also the health of the organization depends on you doing that.
1: The health of the organization, your, your team and that person, I, I appreciate what you were saying there, Meg, is that that person, you're not serving them either. Not it's not office. working for them. That's right. And they may not be able to get to that point themselves, but I, the way I think about it is I don't want my cowardice to make somebody else suffer.
0: That's right. That's exactly right.
1: For not having that and that compassion to take action. All right. Well, we have covered a range of, uh, of territory today as we've talked about human-centered capitalism, uh, empathic, empathetic leadership, uh, the journey of resilience and how that's informed your leadership. Meg, if you had uh, one final thought for our listeners today before we wrap up, uh, and I'm going to leave it on CEO's choice. If you wanted one final message for anybody who accepts a role of responsibility to be a leader in an organization, what might that be?
0: My number one advice is to always work on yourself. Be harder on yourself than anybody else and just consistently push yourself to do better and to know yourself better and know what that is.
1: All right, there you have it, listeners. Start with yourself, lead yourself. do the work on yourself. I think we've got self for the first three or four times, and then we can turn to our team and to the results at organization and the work we're trying to do. All right, fantastic. And I so many good takeaways today. I, I'm particularly thinking about, I'm sorry that happened now recover, and all the opportunity that gives us to not hang out in unnecessary negative emotion. We're not saying grieving isn't important but to not hang out in the unnecessary stuff that drags us down and to support and empower people in their own recovery and moving forward, learning from mistakes. Meg, thank you so much for being a guest with us today.
0: Thank you very much, David.
1: Uh, It has been our pleasure. You're welcome, but it has been our pleasure. All right, listeners, there you have it. You've got several different uh, strategies, practical tools that Meg's equipped you with. So go out, choose one, and be the leader you'd want your boss to be.